you've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You know, doing something for 20 years <laughs> is almost a miracle. I heard many years ago that the average life of a magazine covering UFOs or just about any subject was three years. And now we hear that UFO magazine has been doing it for 20 years. Imagine that. It doesn't seem that long, actually. I, I seem to remember them being around longer, but maybe not. Maybe it's just 20 years. It's still a pretty long time. Yeah, and that's uh, for any magazine. That's pretty amazing. I think most magazines, if they're still going after five years, they tend to have legs. But for the most part, most of them don't make it to five years. Yeah, I said the three-year deadline yeah. is what I hear most of the time. That if yeah. it doesn't pass three years, then that's it. That's really it. And these days, any magazine that survives is almost a miracle because so many magazines are giving up because of the Internet. Oh, yeah magazines, trade shows, so many different forms of media have uh, really taken a hit because of the Internet. But, you know, then there are the magazines that are smart about the Internet and learn how to integrate their print strategy with the online strategy, and you end up with magazines like Rolling Stone, which, by the way, the website, and for those of our listeners who buy the magazine, the website pretty much has all the content that's in the print version of the magazine. So I stopped buying the magazine, but I read the, web, the website every month. Well, that could also be the price to pay. On the other well, hand, yeah. they do receive <laughs> advertising dollars for the website. Yeah. yeah, they're not making their money on subscriptions. So, you know, that's, that's just the reality of the magazine world. But 20 years is a pretty long time for UFO magazine, for any magazine, much less the magazine covering what some would consider to be fringe content. Mm. And it's difficult in this business. It really is because oh, yeah. it's hard enough to make a magazine work when you're dealing with quote-unquote mainstream content. And now, mm -hmm. for example, look at Time Magazine. Time Magazine has been losing uh -huh. business on the newsstand. And now what's going to happen is they'll come out on Fridays instead of on Mondays because they feel they'll get the benefit of that earlier presentation of a story. Also, the advertisers would be able to reach their consumers, their customers, before the weekend. Now, I wonder why they didn't think about this 20 years ago. Why does that make a difference now? Well, because 20 years ago, they were actually concerned about putting out quality content, not about how to grab a little bit more market. But, you know, it's funny how you mentioned Time Magazine, which my dad used to read many years ago, and so I used to read it after he was done. And that used to be a fairly serious publication. The last few times I saw Time Magazine and took a look at it, it was basically like people with, for world news. It's like People Magazine. It was terrible. Well, People Magazine gets their money. That's the, I would say, the premier product on the Time Warner label, oh, really. God. That tells you so much about our society. Well, it's also what's happening in this field. We concentrate a lot on the people and less on the sightings. And the real information here is the evidence that is in favor or not in favor of the reality of UFOs. And if we have evidence that passes muster beyond the personalities. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we assume that people who we all respect, like a Stanton Friedman or all the other people that we've had on our show who've done some great research over the years, if these people weren't around and we had the same sightings, the same mystery, well, I guess it might be better to one extent because we could concentrate on the mystery itself. Of course, we'd need other people, and then we'd have a new personality cult. Oh, wow. Right. But now, let me just understand something, Gene. Besides UFO Magazine and Fate Magazine, who else is in this field? 
Well, we have one which I guess is a fringe connection to this, something called Paranoia Magazine, which is mostly on conspiracy theories. So mm. it's, as they say, in a peripheral fashion. Then there's a magazine on ancient astronauts, again, having a peripheral connection with UFOs because we are thinking that maybe the UFO entities, in quotes, came here centuries ago, aeons ago, whatever, to do their stuff. So that's about it. But as far as other publications, there are a lot of things, of course, that circulate via mail, of course, is the MUFON Journal and other publications that are available to members of an organization. Then we have the situation that AboveTopSecrets.com is doing, where they have three tiers, as we mentioned last week, of access. If you just go to AboveTopSecrets.com, you can access message boards. If you participate right. in the message boards to a certain degree, you get a higher tier membership, and then you get to boards that are now available to the general public. If you take out your credit card or PayPal or whatever, then you get even the higher tier of access, which is to those in the exclusive club, those who help them make a living. Well, how much are they charging for that? How much do they get for that? That's a good question. I mean, if it's not that much money, I, to me, I can recognize the fact that if a website is putting out real money to do what they're doing and if they offer real value, I don't see a problem with that, honestly. I mean, I know that there's historically there's been a lot of resistance to paying for web services, but I have to tell you, there's a website I really love called metafilter.com that I read every day. And what they do, they require people who want to post uh, on their message boards, they require people to pay a one-time fee of $5. If for no other reason to just verify that these people aren't hucksters, that they're not trying to do spam, and that they really want to contribute to the, or to the community, the online community. So for 5 bucks, one-time fee, you then get to post... On Metafilter, and I'll tell you, it's some of the best five bucks I've ever spent. Well, I have to look at that. I don't see the membership policy spelled out right up front here. And I'm looking right. at my account settings, and I don't see it, but, you know, I will look further, and maybe somebody who's responsible for Above Top Secret, and they don't just cover UFOs, by the way. They cover ancient and lost civilizations, cryptozoology, medical conspiracies, scientific topics, a whole bunch of stuff. If the people who are responsible for that site want to come on and tell us what the policies are, I'm happy to hear about it, you know. Yeah, and we should have it, them on the show. I sure. Mean, they, and if it is guess. true that, you know, you've got to pay for different services, that's fine. Now, I have no problem with the merchandising. You know, they have, for example, Who's Your Skeptic T-shirts or mugs and stuff like that mouse pads that's who cute. uses a mouse pad these days mouse pads logo hats you know what that's cool and i'll tell you frankly don't be surprised if we want to do the same thing you know merchandise Absolutely. a little bit that's okay we have to we have to pay the bills you know we all have that's bills, right. and that's, that's right. it in any case today we're going to look at anniversaries and we started out saying, what last 20 years? UFO magazine started by Vicki Ecker and someone named Sherry Stark. And now it's published by William and Nancy Burns. And Vicki and Don Ecker are still associated. And all of them, we're going to have a force oh on the show Whoa. at the same time. Oh, my God. This is going to be interesting. Six people trying to speak at once. That's right. Oh, I man. think we'll try to use our abilities at singing. 
speak for yourself, David. I wouldn't Besame. try. Oh, please. Besame mucho. Well, you, you started it, not me. Well, I know, but I didn't ask you to carry a tune. Yeah, well, now we're really in the Paracast. Indeed. If when you, anyone says that we're going to buy one of David Biedney's hit records, you have to be in a paranormal realm to find it. Oh, ow, that hurts. Isn't that bad? You'll see. One day I'll show you and all the rest of the unbelievers. You'll see. I will. We, by the way, believe it or not, we want you to help us on the Paracast, okay? And it's not to buy merchandise, by the way, although that's going to happen. It is to review our site, review Amen. our show at iTunes, okay? Everyone who has a show on iTunes in their podcast directory, they, like you do on Amazon.com, you have a chance to review the show. Tell us mm -hmm. what you think about it. That's and fine. you can award us from one to five stars, and we hope it's five stars, okay? Eleven. We want eleven of them. We want eleven of the five stars. No, we want eleven stars. Just eleven stars, all across the board. Okay, eleven stars, and we don't We're include that good. we don't include Tom Cruise as a star anymore. Oh no, we don't. Thank goodness for that. Okay, but eleven stars. Whatever it is, <laughs> post your review at iTunes. If you use one of those other podcast aggregators, what a big word, like Podcast Directory or PodcastAlley.com, mm -hmm. you get this one to five star rating scenario and we hope you'll do it and the reason we help you do it is because number one you make the show more attractive for other people to discover That's and number right. two you make our advertisers happy you feed our egos hey <laughs> what about our egos that's okay that's okay. Yeah, let us know you love us. Let us know you love us. Share the love, man. I, I can go for that. And we can go now for this session with William and Nancy Burns, Don and Vicki Ecker coming up on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. Net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let's start with Vicki Ecker. Vicki, you, about 20 years ago, you and Sherry Stark got together and decided to do the craziest thing in the world, to some people anyway, which is to put together a UFO magazine. So how did you get started? Well, we got started like you know, on a shoestring for sure. Uh, Sherry's boss at the time, and I was working at the, uh, before with his organization, was a business bi-weekly in Century City, offered us some office space. We were sharing an office, and this was back in 1980. And both of us just kind of tapped into our own journalism backgrounds. She uh, largely with our graphic arts and uh, writing, and me mostly writing and editing. And together we pooled our resources, not knowing a darn thing about you 
UFOs, really, and uh, just what we thought might be a, a good way to handle the subject, and then produced our first issue in September of uh, 1986. And it was, uh, we hand-did everything. This is the day before computer uh, graphics uh, organization, so we, you know, it was cut and paste. In fact, Sherry just wrote an article about that, which will appear in the next issue. Her, her memories of what went on back in the old days and how she sees uh, the whole subject. It was an exciting time. It was a time of inspiration. It was the best of times, and then later it was the worst of times, if you'll forgive me. So that's, uh, that's where that's at. We know how that works. Now, at some point, you originally called, what, California, UFO? Right. Sherry and I, both natives of, of this most wonderful state in the Union, decided that that would add some cast to the whole UFO thing and also give it kind of a, uh, oh, you know how a lot of people out, out of the state take a look at, at California. It's being a little quirky, being a little, you know, uh, ahead of the time. So we just kind of thought it would be a good way to kind of localize ourselves. But later we found out that if we had California on, on the title of the magazine, it would restrict where we could circulate the magazine. So we took off California and just had UFO to, uh, in order to uh, make it easier for us to have national distribution. So we uh, started out basically uh, interviewing people uh, haphazardly, not really knowing their reputations in the UFO field per se, but just kind of based on what who we thought would be uh, interesting interviews and whose stories seemed to stand out to us. But as time went on, uh, we learned more about the subject, and I started looking more at the UFO field and seeing that there was a lot of disparity in what people's and researchers' opinions were. Some people had good reputations, and others had lousy reputations. Some people were just plain crazy, and others were really, really uh, dedicated, vigorous researchers. And, and some are a combination of both, which makes it even more difficult to understand. Oh, definitely. Well, it's, def- it's still, it's still over walking the line. Still. It, it'll, it'll probably never end unless there's a final release of hardcore information, which I don't see that happening in my lifetime, even though that's the dream. Well, if that happened, right it would now, really heat everything up. I mean, if, if there were actually a real release of hard information from the government, I would think that the subscriber base of, Uf- of UFO magazine would triple overnight. Well, Bill has been in touch with some people that he foresees as possibly opening the doors to some of the bigger secrets. Correct, Bill? That's correct. Um, and just as a rejoinder to um, Gene, and in keeping with the spirit, olive eye on the subscription base, but yes, the answer is that we are in touch with people. Um, and I'm hoping, starting with the November issue, we'll have our first kind of pre story of disclosure and um, maybe two stories and I hope that uh, by the end of the year, we really only have two more issues to go, there's October that's going on press next week and uh, there'll be November and December so I'm hoping that we're two issues away from a relatively large disclosure story maybe even the official one I don't know, but it, it, it won't come originally from UFO magazine there's another magazine, a mainstream magazine that's out there. Yes, it has the same stories we do. And right now they are furious, as we speak, they are furiously debating whether, in the words of one editor-in-chief, to go UFO. And if they go UFO, we will have the absolute majestic joy of covering not only the story, which we know from the inside, but why they went UFO and... um, 
he'll be uh, rocking and rolling end of the year. I'll tell you that if they decide huh. to do it, that will break it. Whoa! You're in the Paracast, and I tell our listeners with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and the voices you've heard so far: Vicky Ecker, who was one of the original founders of UFO Magazine, then called California UFO, which was not a physical UFO in California, although there have been. And Bill, only California UFO, a couple of a couple of free issues. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we also have William Burns, no stranger to our show, and he's today the publisher of UFO Magazine. And we're going to kind of look at the history because they've been around for 20 years. And anything that could last 20 years from a marriage to a magazine is really something special. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, because very few things last that long. And as David and I said in the introduction before the show began, it's just really difficult to keep things going. So let me ask you, Vicki, 20 years, how do you do it? Well, it's not me. It's partly miracles, partly generosity of the people that I've worked with, partly just playing out of the blue luck. And now it's two people, Nancy Burns and... Bill as publisher, Nancy's the editor-in-chief now, uh, who are dedicating so much of their time to making sure that this thing stays in operation, uh, if not become profitable. But we've always been a niche in a niche. So if you have been a magazine that automatically will see on everybody's coffee table, I mean, that would be a dream. It's a, it's a difficult thing to, to support and sustain, but something has kept it going. I would be hard-pressed to try to decide exactly what that is beyond dedication of the people who worked on the magazine and are working on the magazine. And, and just, you know, fortunate, serendipity, the right timing. It's just been fantastic. Bill and Nancy have done a tremendous amount. Don, uh, my husband, uh, who's also on the line, aren't you there, Don? I'm here. I, uh, I would have been out of this game a long time ago if it hadn't been for him. Well, let me ask you a question other than, of course, your association together. Don Ecker, how did you get aware of UFO magazine, of its existence and everything? Uh, back in 1986, I was injured in the line of duty while I was a police officer, and I ultimately ended up medically retiring. And uh, while I was going through physical rehabilitation, I really needed something to keep my mind active, and I ended up buying my very first computer system. And it was with that computer system that ultimately led me down the road to where I'm at today. I compounded that mistake by getting a modem for the computer, and I ended up on the old CompuServe. Oh, yes. And while I was there, I came across a forum called the Issues Forum. And in there were a number of, of articles on various aspects of the UFO phenomenon, including one on cattle mutilations. Now, as it happened, back in 1981-82, I was a lead investigator on two cattle mutilations, and suddenly the whole thing clicked for me. And back in 81-82, in I never really gave it a UFO spin. But after reading that, and then ultimately, subsequently, doing a lot of research, I came to the conclusion that there was some type of, of connection. Now, during that period of time, I met a guy whose name was Don Mason that in 1986-87, he was the state section director for the Mutual UFO Network. And it was he that actually turned me 
on to UFO Magazine. And uh, I subsequently got in touch with Vicki and uh, ended up writing several articles, and that's how it started. Then he ended up, he and I, talking quite a bit and got to know each other and sort of fell in love, as the saying goes. Sure. And the rest is history. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> we, got married on my, we got married on my radio show. 1993. So we've all of us have been together a long time. Uh, Bill and Nancy are more latecomers to the game, but they're what they've lacked in years, in the 20 years, they've certainly made up for in work and dedication <laughs> and just plain being there. So. And Nancy? Nancy, you're listening yeah. to us, I hope. Can you tell us, okay, in spirit and presently, okay? Can you tell us how did you and Bill get involved with this magazine? Well, uh, Bill has written a nice long piece for this coming issue uh, talking about his long involvement or interest in UFOs. And I, um, I was born in 1947. And I'm a novelist early, you know, early in my career. And I was working on a novel about the concept of UFOs and thought since we were coming to California, maybe we'd stop out off in Roswell. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have a foursome representing 20 years of history of UFO magazine. We have Vicki and Don Ecker, Nancy and Bill Burns. Nancy, you stopped in Roswell, New Mexico. What happened next? Well, uh, just to make a long story short, I wrote a novel about the concept of people who thought they were abducted. Uh, in my novel, they weren't really, or the character wasn't really, and I created the idea of um, adult children of extraterrestrials, or ACEs. And um, the novel did not come to be, but the interest has been, you know, I, I kind of became interested in it after that, just kind of more or less because I was doing a research for a novel. So uh, that's my story. And then you and Bill, when did you become the publishers of the magazine? Well, Bill wrote the book The Day After Roswell with Colonel Corso. Right. Uh, he was interviewed by Don and Vicki in 1997, and it was around that time that Don and Vicki were interested in finding some investors for the magazine, and Bill found them an investor, and that's how he got involved. And here you are today, Bill. So why would anybody invest in a UFO magazine with the way this crazy field moves? Well, the way uh, it happened was that the motion picture company, which was the investor, the motion picture company was the company that had purchased the life story rights of Philip Corso, the person who was uh, the author of Day After Roswell. And they were, and they realized, I think, probably naively, but they said, gee, look at what Steven Spielberg has done with uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Golly, what if we had a real story to hang our hats on and invested in a magazine that would essentially be a rights magnet for UFOs?
closed. And they basically invested for that reason. They said, listen, we want you to become kind of like the publishing consultant, really uh, take a position as publisher on the masthead, but really kind of try to guide us to becoming a, a rights magnet. And they basically in, uh, printed the magazine for from 1998, I think, was the first issue they got involved in, all the way to September 2003, and then through a lot of incarnations, failed TV shows, movies that never came to be, things that never really happened, decided at the end of 2003, or at least in the summer, this was it. We, 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 we just can't do it anymore. It's too draining on our limited facilities. So you know what? Uh, if you guys want it, take it over. We'll give you the license to publish the magazine that you sold to us in 1997, 1998. You guys publish it. Here's your right to publish it. Go ahead. And so we kind of had an idea of how to get this back to its grassroots by not over-publishing, not over-manufacturing it, um, focusing more on ads, et cetera, et cetera, trying to broaden the base a little bit, building the Internet infrastructure. And we've done it. And we took the magazine from losing money in uh, September 2003 to just doing a little better than breaking even now. And with new subscribers coming on, we are really optimistic about the future. Bill, you bring up a really interesting issue about um, the notion that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was really the last movie, or what I would call serious movie, to be made about the topic of UFOs. Why do you folks think that there hasn't been another one, another movie to try to broach the subject in some kind of a realistic fashion. Well, uh, just from the point of view of, of, of um, the industry, there have been a number, I mean, first of all, it depends what you call serious movies. Okay, that's, I think right. that's the first issue. What's a serious movie? Uh, is Close Encounters of a Third Kind a serious movie? Um, is the George Clooney Dreams of Mars movie not a serious movie? Is Men in Black not a serious movie? Of course, it's kind of a comedy. Or is the Abyss or the Alien movies not serious? I mean, the Alien movie is a monster movie, Abyss is kind of a bot. So, Contact Everyone Loves. Contact Everyone Loves. Uh, that was a serious movie that came after Close Encounters. No, what? see, Independence Day is a, is kind of a popcorn movie. I don't, I wouldn't There's contact definitely. Yeah, no, I mean Independence Day is, is kind of a contact definitely. I hadn't thought of that one. That's a good point. Right, and so really, what do you so 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 that's number one. What do you call a serious movie? Two, there's the whole issue of what was Steven Spielberg tapped into. Uh, some say he knew about this project called Project Sherpa, which is really something that um, Closing Times of the Third kind fictionalizes. Uh, it's based on a real UFO landing. I don't know, and I'm not going to pontificate about it. I just know one thing, that it's difficult to make a quote-unquote serious UFO movie. I mean, look at some of... And also, there's another difference too, Dave, which is the creation of the Sci-Fi Channel and various cable channels, which kind of bleed off the market for uh, serious UFO movies, because to invest... And uh, what would you call War of the Worlds also? I mean, that would be a serious UFO movie. Hey, I'll tell you something uh, very interesting. Maybe you didn't know this, William, and maybe our listeners don't know. The movie from the 1950s, 
Earth versus the Flying Saucers, the one with those great Ray Harryhausen special effects. That was based very, very loosely on a, a book by Major Donald Kehoe. They bought the rights to the book, and then they made this popcorn Earth face versus the Aliens movie, but they actually based it on a factual book. I don't know whether you know that or not, but you can see the credit at the end of the book that it was based on Kehoe's book. Right. I mean, uh, and, 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 and there were, and if you go back to that period of time, back in the 1950s, that's a period of time when literally uh, there was the Washington, D.C. overflights of UFOs. There's uh, Don can tell the story of his relationship with Al Shop, who was the Pentagon liaison, basically the PIO, and had to man the UFO desk at the Pentagon. It was actually called in on the, I think it was both the first and second weekends in July of 1952 when UFOs were flying over and actually invited the press into the control tower to listen to one of the planes being shot down. So all those stories, Earth versus the UFOs, um, all those were in fact based on real UFO encounters that Keo writes about from the 1950s of planes that were shot down, not just the Mantell incident, which can be debated, but um, other UFO incidents as well. So, um, But there were other movies, and the fact is that now, with the sci-fi channel, with um, television movies of the week, uh, which is a, which is a that industry, but with HBO and Showtime and some of the other cable channels, a lot of the market for David, you're calling a serious movie bleeds off into those so that that's another reason and um it's tough to get a ufo story mounted as a movie unless you've got a franchise director like spielberg a franchise movie maker a brand name movie maker and unless you've got a story that basically everyone kind of is willing to recognize and um i think there are a couple coming up not that they're movies but they are stories so i'm optimistic about it Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fake Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fakemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We've got a foursome of people who represent UFO Magazine 20th anniversary. Don and Vicki Ecker, William and Nancy Burns. You notice not to be sexist, we reverse the names of the male and the female, so everybody gets a chance. We appreciate also the fact that Vicki being co-founder of the magazine. Now that Bill and Nancy have taken over the publishing reins, what is your role, what's Don's role? And we'll let Don explain it himself, but what are your roles now in the publication? I'm not sure <laughs> what my role is anymore. Um, that's a silly game. That's a silly answer. I... I'm the, I'm the senior editor and editor-at-large, 
at least that's on paper, that's what I am. And it, it, it means that uh, at this point, I'm still involved with the magazine. I still am part owner of the magazine, but I'm kind of letting a lot of the day-to-day operations fall into other hands. For me, it's, it works because after 20 years, I have lost the shine that I used to have on the subject, although I still am very interested in, in what it portends. I've become a little discouraged. I've, I basically am trying to rev myself up again into enthusiasm, and it's just been a little difficult for me uh, for a number of different reasons. Um, the main one being that um, anything gets old after 20 years, even UFOs. And there's a lot of facets to the subject. I've seen them all, and uh, I've certainly seen a lot of the people in the field, too. Uh, there's so much infighting. Um, I, I am, unlike my husband, unlike Don, I am affected by the way other people deal with the subject that I deal with or deal with the people I'm involved with. I just basically, I guess I could say I'm a little oversensitive. Don and I both still do a column. We're both actively involved in really making commentary and knowing what we have experienced and the history that we've gone through. And uh, for me, it's like I do feel that there's something else for me uh, that might be part of my professional life ahead. But uh, what that might be beyond UFO Magazine, I'm not certain at this point. Don, <laughs> I want to ask you something also about this, and that is how do you keep the interest up and your definitely still interested. Vicky sees it maybe a little bit of a waning of the interest. And I can see because of just in the time the show has been on, a little over six months, we've seen examples of the infighting. This stuff goes back to the 1950s. So I've seen the infighting for a long, long time. And it's been very frustrating. So how do you remain interested after all these years? Well, there are actually two areas of the phenomena that really captured my interest early, and I've never lost it. And those two areas of particular interest involve encounters with various military organizations around the world, not just the United States, and encounters that have occurred in near-Earth space and within the solar system. Now, to me, those two areas represent some of the best cases showing UFO reality. A lot of things that we've covered in recent years, like Bill had mentioned Project Serpo, I personally think that that's just some more garbage that has continuously inhabited the field. Every so often you'll get one of these really shiny cases that come out of nowhere and everybody's interest is parked up and you get a lot of people talking about it and invariably and my you know participation goes back almost two decades i've seen it time and time again invariably these cases turn out to be nothing so uh in order to keep my my interest in this park uh those areas involve military encounters and near-earth Space encounters is really what keeps me galvanized. Give us some examples of some of those near Earth space encounters. Um, what are you talking about specifically? STS 48 is one case. Another case involved the former Soviet Union with two probes that they sent to Mars Phobos 1, Phobos 2. And lunar phenomenon unexplained lunar activity that uh, has been documented going back literally centuries. 
those are areas that that really keep me going when it comes to this subject. Don, I know some of our listeners are going to look at us and say, what's he talking about? So maybe you can expand on a couple of those things for the sake of those who aren't familiar with all the nuances here and maybe cite a couple of those instances that lead you to pursue this. STS-48 is a good one, Don. Well, STS-48 was a 1991 NASA shuttle launch with the Discovery Shuttle. And it was on about a five-day mission. They were deploying satellites and doing some other things. And while the shuttle was above Australia and New Zealand on the 15th of September, the shell camera picked up an anomaly rising above the rim of the Earth. And this was appeared to be a self-lit object. And it was traveling lazily across, you know, the viewing screen that you can see. Suddenly, off camera, and the shuttle camera was bolted to the shuttle. So if the shuttle moved, the camera moved. Suddenly, there was a flash of light off screen, and something straight toward this unknown, this anomaly. And the object made a dramatic 140-degree right-angle turn and at least tripled or quadrupled its speed, shot out into space, so this thing that shot at it missed it. Then it lazily circled back around and came back in toward the, the planet. Now, this case itself literally talks several hours about this is a, a very, very big case. But to cut it short, I knew several producers out here on various television programs in the Los Angeles area, and I called them up when I got a copy of this tape, and I said, hey, you guys occasionally do UFO-themed topics. I said, you've got to see this. And I ended up originally breaking the story on the old hard copy program. You may re remember that. Yes. Uh, at the very beginning of June 1992, and then followed up with an appearance on Larry King Live about this, where I debated Dr. Jim Oberg, who was a NASA contract scientist. Now, the case in itself, NASA tried to claim that this object was wastewater from a shuttle water. The only problem with that explanation was the shuttle dump had not yet happened. It happened a few minutes after this sequence occurred on the videotape that I had. And the day after the Larry King show, prior to that time, NASA would feed down live images from space. The day after that King interview, they encrypted that channel. And from that day hmm. to this, anything you see from outer space is either vetted or done in time delay before it's released to the public. Now, there's more to it, but that was one of the cases that was just spectacular. Actually, it turns out that uh, video footage is sitting up on YouTube.com, and um, I just looked at it. What's most interesting is that it appears that the object changes direction. And I think that's a, yeah. that's always a, an interesting sign when people say, "Oh, it's something that was just released from the shuttle." Yeah, but how does it then change its trajectory? That's that's very odd. Doesn't like the people on the shuttle. That's the problem. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney, or even David Vietney and Gene Steinberg. And we're talking to Vicki and Don Ecker, Nancy and Bill Burns. And the subject is the 20th anniversary of UFO magazine, which means, of course, we're talking about very interesting, very prominent cases. David? Well, there's uh, actually, if you go on YouTube.com and look at, uh, do a search under UFOs and shuttles, you find there's actually a pretty wild amount of footage floating around besides the STS-48 episode. There's some really weird footage out there. So uh, thanks for turning me on to that one, uh, Don. That That is a very, odd, a very odd piece of footage. Again, the object seems to change trajectory, which in my mind sort of rules out anything, you know, sort of casual. That If something can change its, its, its motion and its direction, uh, that would suggest it's not just a random episode. Well, there's, like I said, there's a tremendous amount that goes into this case that we just simply don't have time for. But that is probably one of the most infamous cases involving NASA, although it's certainly not the only one. Mm-hmm. There's so much material. I mean, if there was a, a freer line of information on this subject, and I've known this since the day we began the magazine. Uh, well, no, I shouldn't say that. Actually, I had to learn a little bit about it. Maybe after a year of seeing just how much material there was, I realized that I think people would be astounded if they knew just how many UFO events have taken place on this planet and how many responsible, legitimate people have had very bizarre sightings and other experiences even more intense than sightings. Uh, you don't hear about it, and it always has been. I hope not will always, will not always be a sub subject because people who have had these experiences, they inevitably get ridiculed. And they simply learn to shut up. And mm-hmm. they, if it was a free thing to talk about, I mean, in the 50s, sex wasn't talked about. And we see how things have changed in that way. Maybe in the middle of the 21st century, this would become less of a taboo. Who knows? People would be astounded if they just knew the sheer numbers of events that have taken place that have to do with UFOs and the number of responsible people. And if people did their homework and really you know, took away all the prejudices, just said, I'm going to look at this dispassionately. I'm not going to have any preconceived notions. I'm going to just look at what material is available. Hey, all they'd have to do is look at back issues of the magazine. But that's not to say that we are saying that these are all extraterrestrial right. craft. Right. Right. We use the term, the acronym UFO. At least I can I can speak definitely for myself. I mean it as the Air Force originally meant it, unidentified flying object. And the the extraterrestrial label is only one of several possible explanations for that. Let's look into that a little bit, and I'm going to ask Bill Burns to pick up on this. Do you have any thoughts as to whether UFOs are spaceships, extra-dimensional objects, something that's related to our own planet, or what? I tend to believe that I would say 99% or 98% of the sightings that people have, um, if you dismiss the argument or, or, or just dismiss them as eliminate the conventional explanations, and there are plenty of conventional explanations, and I believe they're the, mostly the correct ones, I believe that a lot of the sightings that people have are of 
craft that are completely earthly in origin. They're weapons. They're being tested. Um, and I, I, I guess the classic example for me, the best example for me, would be flying triangles. First of all, flying triangles that um, I'm not talking about the ones where the lights are detaching and reforming. I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not so sure about that, even though there are plenty of eyewitnesses from Phoenix who would describe it. I know that um, really for the past 20 years, the military has been experimenting with neutral air buoyancy devices, uh, some of which are going to be turning up in uh, my forthcoming book, Space Wars, coming out this April. Um, neutral air buoyancy devices, uh, uh, which are designed to transport huge numbers of troops, the personnel transport uh, aircraft, um, into near-Earth orbit, uh, as high as you can get, uh, from, let's say, a Fort, Fort Benning to uh, Baghdad in, in a matter of hours, instead of having to transport troops um, by conventional aircraft. And there's a civilian use for these which is, it's basically FedEx, uh, UPS, the, uh, the mail, cargo. They've been developing these for about, they've been developing these for about uh, 10, 15 years, at least since the late 1980s. And a lot of what you see of flying triangles are these craft, and they've been testing them. So I, I don't think they're extraterrestrial in origin a bit. And I think we'll see them uh, gradually revealed as we use them, but we're just not going to, the government's just not disclosing it so fast. Mm -hmm. Looking at one other thing here with regard to Philip Corso and this so-called alien technology that the government got a hold of, are they doing anything with craft now that represents technology that we didn't have before the aliens showed up? I mean, my, you know, my take on that is that our government and the German government and the British government and the Canadian government have been doing research in anti-gravity craft long before Philip Corso uh, talked about the day after Roswell. I think that we were, as a fact, we were experimenting. Scientists at, uh, were experimenting with uh, anti-gravity as far back as Thompson in Pasadena in the 1920s. A lot of the research in anti-gravity was taken up by the Germans before World War II. This is not the Nazis. Uh, before World War II, the British experimented with this. And so I think there's really been a fascination with anti-gravity craft. Uh, I tend to think that a lot of the impetus for the kinds of aircraft that were developed, especially subsequent to World War II, had more to do with the fact that governments around the world were all heavily invested in the petroleum industry. I'm not making a value judgment here. I'm just saying it was a matter of fact that you had um, huge economic infrastructure, especially after World War II, in the petroleum industry. And so craft that used petroleum, as opposed to anti-gravity per se, were, um, they were easier. It took less technology to develop new versions of the aircraft. And until such a time as petroleum fuels become cost prohibitive, uh, you're going to see more uh, our reliance on those. But no, I think that even before Corsa, we were explaining with anti-gravity craft, flying wings, the Horton flying wing, which was wooden, so that wasn't the Roswell craft, but the Horton flying wing was, uh, they were experimenting with that in Germany before World War II, um, and in fact, the craft that Kenneth Arnold described over Mount Rainier surprisingly resembled 
craft that the Germans were experimenting with in the 1930s. So it, it just it just goes to show that at the time of Roswell, even if we didn't know where it was from, whether it was a German craft, an American, we just didn't know, it would have been prudent not to talk about this thing in the open press until somebody figured out what it was. But I do think we've had versions of that technology on a, on a workbench level uh, before, of course, I talked about it in Day After Roswell. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Bill and Nancy Burns and Don and Vicki Ecker. And they work with UFO Magazine, celebrating its 20th anniversary. And as we speak, there is a 20th anniversary issue on the newsstands, and it tells you all about the history of the publication. So if you also go to ufomag.com and maybe your newsstand doesn't carry it, you could order a copy direct from them. So I'm going to ask you, Bill, because you raised the question. So maybe we were working on anti-gravity craft in the 20s and 30s. Did we develop that technology ourselves? or is there some outside influence? I tend to believe we developed it ourselves. Um, I'm not a, I'm not, I, I know what Corso said and I wrote in uh, The Day After Roswell, but um, I really do have an issue with the, um, the fact that we've um, been kind of gifted with alien technology over the years. Um, I think that a lot of it was, was just basically homegrown technology. When you realize um, how far advanced Nikola Tesla was as early as the turn of the century, but I can document to you what the kinds of weaponry that Tesla brought to the Office of Naval Research, the ONR, at the outset of World War I. We're not even talking about World War II. We're talking about World War I right now. Um, Tesla had proposed developing for the Navy robot-guided torpedoes. This is before we had actual submarine warfare. Robot-guided torpedoes. Robot soldiers. 
um, particle beam weapons. This is all, by the way, this is all documented stuff um, in the Tesla, in the various Tesla books that are not apocryphal, that were written by Tesla. And the reason the Navy shut down so many of these is that Thomas Edison, who was Tesla's bitter enemy, was sitting on the Board of Naval Research and basically was vetoing everything that Tesla brought up. I mean, I can tell you the famous story about Edison and Tesla, but it would take too long to tell. But Edison shut it down. He couldn't stand Tesla. Tesla was a major threat to the guy. And of course, you know their debate over DC versus AC, uh, electricity generation. But the point is, this was Tesla in 1915. At the outset of World War II, Tesla went to the um, Army Board of Research. It was Army R&D. It was called OCD. And he went there and talked about anti-gravity, which he had been researching. So this is your example of anti-gravity. And the Army turned him down cold. They didn't have the money for the research. Tesla was a wacko. He basically was a broken and drunken old man living in kind of a, um, um, a single-room occupancy hotel in, in Chelsea in Manhattan by 1941. And um, they just didn't trust the guy. Yet, when he died, in 1944, believe me, the special agent in charge of the New York Bureau of FBI, the New York office, was at his hotel room the day after his death, seizing his papers under the Alien Properties Act, withholding them from uh, the Yugoslavs after the war, and all of Tesla's anti-gravity material went to General Nathan Twining at Wright Field, who was the head of uh, Air Naval Research. So, I mean, so we have this technology. It, 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 it didn't come from a UFO, or if it did, they gave it to Tesla. But we had this as far back as the beginning of the 20th century. There's a story that goes back to the 1950s, and we kind of brought it back last week when we were talking to Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy of ProjectCamelot.org. And, of course, Bill Ryan is the guy who brought forth a lot of the Project Serpo stuff. And they talked about somebody they've interviewed recently called Ralph Ring, who worked with someone named Otis T. Carr in the 1950s. And he disappeared in the early 60s, but allegedly he built this 45-foot circular craft that the government came in and silenced him. Have you ever heard this story? I've heard versions of the story. I really, it's kind of back in the mythology of UFOs. Vicky, Don, what do you know? Well, as far as I have uh, learned over the years, just by watching the inter intercept between UFOs and, and, and uh, alternative technology, the power machine that really does work on our uh, oil-based infrastructure, or you could say the government, I don't know if you want to put it how, whatever would be the right way to say it, have tried to suppress any advancement in alternative technology. Otis T. Carr being one example of it. Remember, Don, when Bill Nelson was writing on articles for us and what he said about a friend he had? Yeah, but the Carr case, if my memory serves me, this was a guy back in the 50s that was looking for investors. And then the guy basically took off, if I recall that case. He was a scam artist, huh? Hmm. That's what I seem to recall about that, yes. I know he did disappear, but I never heard of him being arrested for anything. And supposedly he died no, years not, later. Not arrested, Gene. Not arrested, but he took off with the investor's money. Uh -huh. it, was, it was, if I recall correctly, it was a scam to bilk investors. 
so he could build this flying saucer. And when he got whatever money uh, he was looking for, he took powder. Hmm. But other names have been in the field, uh, such as John Bedini, Thomas Newman, who had a car that I guess like Daryl Hannes could, could run on something like corn oil. But these things have never been able to get really off the ground. There's too much invested, both on a cultural and an economic front, in the, in the fossil fuel infrastructure for that to take over. I think that, I don't know what the reason is. I cannot figure it out, frankly. Well, you know, the reason is, I mean, at, at least on one level, the reason is this, that when you look at how deep and long and, 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 and strong the fossil fuel industry is for the American economy, and I'm not supporting it. I mean, this is, this right, is uh, right. I, I think that it's caused war after war after war, no matter who the good guy or the bad guy is. I think we've or we've beaten our heads against each other for 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 more than 50 years just because of fossil fuels and um, without even talking about whether they're destroying the uh, ozone or, or the greenhouse gases. It's just this is what we've done. But the fact is, on an economic basis, fossil fuels and whether the truth or the myths of the scarcity thereof are true have become the economic infrastructure of the country. So um, we have had the ability to have more efficient carburetors. We've had the ability to run cars on something other than gasoline and diesel engines on something other than gasoline. Even car manufacturers. Right. I mean, I met somebody, it's funny, I met somebody, Vicky, at a party. I was visiting my son in San Francisco a few weeks ago. I met somebody at a party and this person was kind of an artist, hippie. I mean, you know, something, somebody we would really Grok uh, uh, back from the back from the seventies, and here's a guy who basically was explaining how he jury rigged his car to run on vegetable oil, but because yeah, there was no right. gas pump for vegetable oil, so he always had this the salad smell about him, which kind of made him repugnant on dates, you can imagine. And this guy would actually have to carry in a trailer gallons of vegetable oil, buy it from 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 farmers refine it in a refinery he was towing with his car as he drove across country. And he said, I finally gave it up and bought myself a Prius. Why? Because quite frankly, we're not invested in the vegetable oil industry, even though the amount of vegetable we plow under every year because the government pays the farmers to plow it under is enormous. It, it's just astounding. Why? Because it you, is. It's just mind-boggling. And you look at this guy who's the head of Exxon, right? All 900 pounds of this guy with his 18 shins bred about his $10 million um, golden parachute. And no, no, $600 million, if I'm not wrong. Oh, it was $600 million. million. <laughs> yeah, it was some crazy amount of money. You know, guys, we've talked about this topic on the show, and uh, something that's come up, we've always wondered, is that if there were truly these alternative forms of energy that were available, you'd think these oil companies and the energy companies would be the ones who would invest in it, because basically they've got the money to plow into this stuff, and essentially it's about transitioning their business. It's like, guys, you have... But it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as profitable as oil, because it would be such a cheap commodity to the point where some... 
some, if you go back to Tesla, like Bill was talking about, it would be free energy. And that, I believe, is what is mm. the substrate behind UFOs. Mm. I think, uh, in other words, that's the power. It just doesn't work in, in, a, in a world that's entrenched in global uh, economics. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, before you continue, let me tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Vicki and Don Ecker, Nancy and Bill Burns on the 20th anniversary of UFO magazine. And we're finding out that when you talk about UFOs, suddenly you're into what is called parapolitics, which has to do with conspiracy theories, secret governments, conspiracies to deprive everyone from free energy. And right now we're seeing the price of oil keeps going up. And most of the crises are manufactured very little is really going on it's just a lot of nonsense not global warming guys global warming is not manufactured that's incredibly real and the price that that's going to incur in terms of the ability of society moving forward i think this might be the thing that forces everybody's hand well, maybe and maybe, maybe and maybe not, because one of the great, I mean, if you take, call it the UFO myth, and you kind of expand it to other areas, uh, when, I mean, here Don is talking about something that everybody, and Dave, you mentioned, anybody can see on YouTube. And this whole business, this SDS 48, I mean, it's as plain as the nose on your face. There are people who will say, oh, no, it's icicles. Oh, no, it's a whole bunch of things. But the fact is, you can go to YouTube and see it yourself without any intervention from any other organization, right? Sure. There are stories that are bound from the military. I hope we're breaking a couple of them before the end of the year. One at Edwards Air Force Base, another one at another Air Force Base in one story, in one story, the, the commandant of an Air Force base, we already have the story, it's a matter of getting permission from the guy to break it, uh, the, the commandant of an Air Force base actually says on a loudspeaker, this is 30, 40 years ago, on a loudspeaker to people at the base, I want everybody out here to look at this, and it's a UFO. I mean, there it is. It's hovering over the base. I want you to see this and remember what you're seeing because it's going to be denied by, um, it's going to be denied, but you're seeing it. We heard three Monday nights ago that um, all of the transmissions between aircraft and air traffic controllers, this is on Black Box uh, UFOs on the History Channel, we heard... The actual transmissions from the various pilots seeing UFOs and NORAD, NORAD even gets on and, and at first they were laughing about it, then they picked this thing up on radar over Alaska and got very, very nervous that over our Alaskan bases there was a UFO that was harassing various kinds of flights by observing what was going on. So you've got hours and hours of these transmissions, you've got videotape, you've got photos, You've got the astronauts themselves first saying it, then denying it, that they've seen um, anomalous.
let's call them anomalous objects uh, around the moon or in Earth orbit. So you have all this, and what happens is the government doesn't deny it. They simply don't acknowledge it. And as a result... You feel like a fool for bringing it up. And you say to a, a Neil Armstrong, look, Neil, you said this um, on the Apollo mission. You actually said you're seeing something. He said, oh, no, I didn't. Oh, no, I didn't. And, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the tapes are there. You talk to Buzz Aldrin, who's recently denied ever saying it and comes up with a real crazy explanation for it. And yet, at the time, he was the one who was saying that their craft was being shadowed by, by a bogey. So, I mean, what do you say when you've got people and there's nothing what do you do sue them in court so guys what is it going to take for the government i mean this might be a really ridiculous question but at what point can the government no longer deny the reality of this what is it going to take for them to say all right you know what there's something going on and we don't understand it what what's going to be the turning point unless and this is i fervently have believed this for years unless one of those things drops down into the middle of Los Angeles City or New York, or, or unless suddenly out of the blue, the ET invasion fleet shows up hovering above the Earth. Nothing in, in uh, this reality will ever pass uh, I, them. I have another thought on that. I, I do have an idea of, of another way that it might it might happen. Yeah. Um, this is Nancy. It, it occurs to me that you know, fifty percent of the people are more believe in this sort of thing, mm-hmm. and it's part of the TV and all that sort of thing. And it occurs to me that when the majority of people, let's say ninety nine point nine percent of people, just take it for granted, then it will be real. Uh, and I think that's what the government might be waiting for. It might just wait until the paradigm shifts. And they don't have to words, do any work. Words. They don't have to say they never said. That's another thought I've had. For some reason, when this is suddenly accepted, then it's over. Well, then what and happens that, then? And we're processing when we're moving toward that. Hmm. And, and maybe it's something that will take generations. Who knows? It, it, it Maybe another generation, but not, not very much more. I mean, if, if you just think about this thing like any other paradigm shift, it's a geometric progression. Each and every year it gets faster and faster. So I just have yes, a feeling that this is going to be a non-issue in a little bit of time, and, you know, it, it, you know, we'll all wonder. That's why I hope we can stick around for, you know, another 20 years, because we'll be one of the reference points. Right. You know, exactly. and how you yeah. Yeah. There are so many fingers pointing at the year 2012 between Mayan prophecy all the way to all sorts of documents that have been released about aliens, ET, and UFOs, there seems to be this um, sort of a vortex around the year 2012. I've heard a lot of commentary about that year, and in fact, it comes down to the month of December of 2012. I'm Part of me is is very uh, very anxious about this. The other part of me is thinking it's going to kind of go like the Y2K thing, where everybody expected the worst, and uh, basically it came and went with a fizzle. So I think there's a lot of People, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of. There's a lot of expectation about 2012 that there's going to be some great revelation. Then, have you guys found that in your audience that there is that sense of expectation about 2012? The flaky and new age media have been pounding it. Uh, right. And I, I have to say at the same time, um, somebody I truly respect because of his far thinking, which not my husband and a lot of other people don't. Is Terrence McKenna, a person that used to take psychedelics. 
Uh, he's dead now. He, he passed away uh, a few years ago. In his visions, he saw 2012 as being the year when it would be the end of novelty, that something dramatic was going to take place. And he had a few mind prophecy. But all these things, it is like, I, I'm glad you brought up Y2K because it is like that. There's so yeah. much attention and so much fear. We have a friend who had a friend that moved to New Zealand. I just don't know about 2012, but I'm anxious to see if anything happens. Yeah. Well, also remember, this whole, the whole thought of 2012 is only an issue because that's when the Mayan calendar ends. I mean, so there's really, I mean, there are a lot of psychics, there are a lot of folks who said, oh no, this is going to be a big event. Um, I can put my own spin on it, but if you really put it on a workbench and say, okay, what is it? Right. Drop, the, uh, drop the chemical on it for the litmus test. What you get is a primitive people's calendar ended in 2012, and that could mean anything from they, they didn't know how to count any higher, to the guy who kept the calendar had a heart attack and killed over, to um, <laughs> any one of a uh, hundred different reasons for it, none of which had anything to do with us. It had everything to do with They ran out of rocks. I mean, what can you say? You just don't know. Um, in fact, in 2012, as uh, Walter Crittenden has said in um, his book, The Lost Star, um, planet Earth passes across the meridian of the galaxy. And that's very important because there is there is literally a galactic paradigm shift, a celestial paradigm shift in a whole bunch of gravitational forces and that the Mayans knew that and since they didn't know what was going to happen after that shift, they simply stopped counting. Because that was a major major shift. Well, we entered the age of Aquarius or something at that point. Well, we could use an age of Aquarius right now. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You are in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell everybody, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Don and Vicki Ecker, Bill and Nancy Burns, and we're talking about UFO Magazine, 20 years worth. And in our waning sessions here, we should talk about the next 20 years. We're talking about that 2012 thing. And we've heard predictions, Bill, I'll tell you, we've heard predictions before that such is going to happen and such and such a date. And 99.9% .9 of the time, the predictions never come to pass. So what about this one? I don't think anything's going to happen. I, I think it's going to pass. Vicky, 
I think I was just going to pass. People are going to look around. They'll look at their watches. They'll stare at each other. And they'll say, okay. And then there'll be another event. Remember Carl Wolf, Don and Vicky? Remember he was working with us? Oh, yeah. I remember what he did for Y2K. I mean, I, I, I love this guy. He was working for um, what channel? W, uh, the uh, the uh, UPN channel here in L.A. So he was working for this channel. This guy had this great condo in West Hollywood. He was so freaked out about Y2K. Came and went, nothing happened, right? I sit on my roof. I said, hey, it's Y2K. There you go. Um, nothing happened. He was so freaked out about this, sold everything he had, moved out to the desert, moved out to County waiting for society to collapse because he was afraid. You know, then he had to sell the place in Kern County. Well, you know, so it's very I, interesting, <laughs> Bill, that we had this Y2K phenomenon, and my opinion is a lot of it was nonsense, and they sure sold a lot of computers, and a lot of programmers got a lot of work ahead of them to bring everything in compliance, but it was all much ado about nothing, except, of course, if you were a technology company and you made all that money from the sales of Y2K-compliant products. Especially if you were a Russian programmer who worked under the Soviet system, and if that were the case, then what you found out then, because you could program in COBOL, you were able, and which is a lost language now for most computer programmers, if you could program in COBOL, you were able to go in and replace the slots on the old Intel processors with, um, with, with slots that would actually hold the ability to rotate to the year 2000. Literally, that was, uh, they made the most money, these, these like 70-year-old uh, Russian programmers who knew how to program in this archaic 19, late 1950s language for, uh, for business, they were doing this. But I mean, it came and went. I think in 2012, I would like to believe that um, we will acknowledge the fact in 2012 that time travel has existed and we are able to at least communicate in time and hence time will fold back on itself but that's a private belief there's not one iota of scientific evidence that I can bring to bear to support that I just know that one person from IBM told me years ago that IBM already had something called a quantum computer that could communicate with the past hmm. and that's what he said now this was a guy this was an IBM engineer and he said this to me, and I said, okay, great. And he said, no, no, it's the holy grail of IBM right now, and uh, working with um, the NSA, and uh, there you go. So that's what he said. True? I don't know. That's exciting. That would that's... be a, fun, a wonderful thing to happen. That would be wonderful. Yeah, but this isn't a fraud with a lot of complexities. Like, if you do something by messaging, forget about traveling back and forth through time. And I'm thinking of, what was that movie where... Dennis Quaid plays the father who died. Frequency. 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 Yes. Frequency. Frequency. Yeah. Okay, communicating through time. In reality, what's going to happen is it could change the past, couldn't it? That paradox, the time travel paradox that science fiction writers have had to contend with. Not if there's a multiverse that won't. No, not at all. What if, what if what we exist in is a multiverse? 
uh, which is basically what a lot of quantum uh, uh, physicists say, that we exist not in a single universe where if you go back in time and change something, then the future disappears. Rather, we exist in a multiverse in which if there's one space-time continuum, there are many, and if you change something, if you alter the present in a certain way, then, or alter the past in a certain way, you simply create a brand new future based on those premises, but you don't eliminate the future that already exists. And this is the premise of remote viewing. And, and on Don's old radio show, we interviewed Paul Smith. And Paul Smith documented for us over the year uh, his remote viewing, and it's, he's a guest you may want to have. He documented for us over the year his remote viewing all the way back in the 1980s of the attack on the USS Stark in the Persian Gulf. And it's in his book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, and Paul Smith was interviewed. We interviewed him two times in UFO Magazine, and uh, we go to the website, buy the magazine, and uh, we'll send you that. And we interviewed him, and he explained what happened when he remote viewed the USS Stark, that attack, and we went into work the following Monday, his boss, Skip Atwater, not Skip Atwater, his boss said to him, listen, tell me about this report you wrote on Friday. He did, and then his boss showed him the uh, article from the Washington Post 48 hours later of the same exact incident. And that's what caught the CIA's attention real fast on the ability of remote viewing. Now, the philosophical implications were if Smith knew that there was an attack on the USS Stark and he notified the crew, he got a message to the crew, put up your phalanx missile defense now, an attack is on its way, and they blunted the attack. What does that mean? Is it, is it the same thing that Ebenezer Scrooge asks the ghost of Christmas future? Are these shadows of things yet to come? Or is the future unalterable? And Scrooge finds out in a Victorian universe that things are alterable. So what would happen? But the fact is he's seen the future. So therefore the future exists as he sees it. If he changes it, does it cease to exist and everything having to do with that future? Or does he create a new timeline? I tend to believe he creates a new timeline. And so there are a number, probably an infinite number of futures, an infinite number of Gene Steinbergs and Dave Biedney's running around. Well, that would be the greatest thing in the world, I have to tell you right now. I just don't want to meet them. I wouldn't want no. to meet my counterpart because would that make us both fade into non-existence if I met one or two of my counterparts? And I'm thinking a couple of science fiction TV show episodes where that happens. Well, I don't know if you can meet them, but certainly the um, rise of, of string theory postulates that these things are not only uh, possible, but actually they're probable. And at that point, we really start to hit the limits of our own ability to test these theories. I mean, they're in the realm of mathematics, there's a tremendous amount of work going on trying to understand this notion of the multiverse and uh, all of the ramifications of what string theory brings forth. The problem is that where this runs into a scientific wall is that a lot of this stuff simply can't be proven in any physical, concrete way. We're, we're sort of at the limits of our ability to manipulate matter, and now we go off into the theoretical, which is good and fine, and mathematicians can understand it, but the average person says, this has no relevance to my life. This is never going to impact me. 
Hmm. Well, if people would learn to train their minds, such as remote viewers been able to do, I think they'd find out just how malleable reality is. Ooh. I believe it is. I think our brains, our minds, are at a certain evolutionary point where it's like we're we're still in a childhood sense, in a in an infancy of learning to mm-hmm. uh, use those muscles of visualization of well, it's it's a metaphysical thing that I I have studied for years, but I can see the difference between studying these ideas and then putting to to use. It's just not easy. Right. It's just not easy. But to, but to realize that how malleable thing is once science is able to show us uh, a clear way a, a layperson can understand strength theory then maybe that's what we'll learn how to, to manipulate reality and that may be when time and space and changing the past can happen I, I believe somewhere I can believe that could be happening and that maybe there are people from other planets that know how to do that that are skilled in those in those senses and that's how they can reach planet earth if they want to come to from zeta reticuli or whatever Hmm. you know you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast tell our listeners here in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Don and Vicki Ecker, Bill and Nancy Burns, 20 years of UFO magazine, but it's not just UFOs. Don, I'm going to ask you because of the various theories we're raising here, which seem to go beyond UFOs into the realm of time travel and and physics, elements of physics we don't understand. Now, I always thought of you as kind of a nuts and bolts kind of guy about UFOs and spaceships and all that stuff. Where do you stand on all this. Okay, let's get specific. Where do I stand on exactly what? Where do you stand on these other elements involving time travel, potential time travel, either physically or via communication? Do you think that's part of the UFO or conspiracy theories that we've got out there? Well, you know, I love, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I love good science fiction. And I love what good science fiction suggests out there. And when you talk about time travel, I guess that's been a fantasy of mine for a very long time. I would like to think that something like that is, in fact, possible. And actually, if you follow what Albert Einstein postulated, it may, in fact, be very possible to physically at some point with, of course, the right technology to travel in time. Would I think that it is conceivable? Absolutely, yes. And uh, just like traveling into interstellar space, I would love to think that perhaps before I leave this earthly plane, I may be, may be able to do something like that. But uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> Make it very difficult. So where do you stand today looking at the 20 years of UFO magazine, your interest in UFOs prior to those 20 years? Where do you think it's gone? Where do you think it's going to go in the next 20 years? Do you think 
that we might as well just accept the fact that we're never going to figure out what's going on? Okay. As a matter of fact, in my very last column, that was basically what I was getting at. This field has evolved into what I think is, is a circus. There are, unfortunately, too few people out there that have an interest in this subject that are actually diving after what facts can be gleaned from the field. This one problem with, with UFO research, and this is something I've said countless times over the years, there is no university to go to get a degree in UFO research. Who would be those people that would be probably most successful at a pursuit like this? They would be people in the scientific disciplines as well as professional investigators. Now, most people, unfortunately, do not have those backgrounds behind them. And what this then becomes is a case of where it's like much like religion. I believe. I mm -hmm. believe that Project Serpo is real. What facts do you have to support that? Well, I said I believe. And I'm just using Serpo as an example. And when you start fiddling around with someone's beliefs, their belief structure, that's when you run into problems. And over the years, I've seen too many people over the last number of years that simply become ultimately irrational about this because of their belief structure. Mm -hmm. And some of the most astounding claims have been made over the last 20 years that I've witnessed. And I got to tell you, I've become quite a cynic when I, when discussing a lot of. This. So you're getting kind of disgusted with where UFOs are going. Isn't this though what's always been happening in the UFO field? All these crazy controversies, all this confusion, all this other stuff. I've always tried to to separate myself from so much of that because it it really is it's time consuming and it's really wasteful to become involved in these petty little arguments and disagreements and ultimately all that we are doing in the UFO field when we in fact come involved in those petty arguments and disagreements that ultimately mean nothing is providing fodder for the skeptics and the debunkers and that's what I said in my in my very last column they go off laughing their collective asses off at us because we refuse as a whole the UFO research community to demand excellence. Don, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think you're absolutely right with that. And the problem is that, yes, uh, the infighting and the uh, the pettiness simply gives fodder to the skeptics to say, you know what, these people are just all nuts. And it's, it's unfortunate. I think you've hit the nail on the head, though. It really has, uh, it's marginalized the whole discussion. And that's, that's a very unfortunate thing, especially in this time now when we have things like the Internet to get these ideas and to get these messages across that there's so much noise going on in the field, people arguing with one another, 
people who are quite frankly psychotic. We've had some of them on our show, these folks who come on with these crazy belief systems. And Don, that's the other thing you said that I think really hit the nail on the head. Um, my tagline in the show has been, I don't want to believe, I want to know. Because belief, you can believe anything you want. But to actually have an actual understanding of something, that takes a lot more work. But ultimately, I think it's worth a lot more. So I agree with you 100% well, you know, on what you're saying. That's what I what I told skeptics over the years. I, I've had a number of debates with various skeptics over the years and some very well-known, very prominent skeptics. And I've always pointed one thing out to them. And I would always say, gentlemen, you know, prior to Project Blue Books being closed in 1969, this is something you should think about, that every Air Force base of note had a UFO case officer on site. They didn't have a U.S. Air Force ferry officer or a U.S. Air Force ghost officer. But they did have one officer that was tasked to investigate any UFO cases that came their way. Now, that is something that also probably today is not well known. Is that still true? No, no. That's why I said prior to Blue Book being officially shut down in 1969. Gotcha. So that shut down that whole that whole idea, that whole reality. Sure. They all had UFO case officers. Hmm. And uh, the Air Force doesn't like to admit to that, but that's a matter of public record. Fascinating. That makes it difficult. And do you think now today, with all the controversy going on, and it's in every field, and part of it is the Internet, which is available to everybody, and it makes it all the more easier for people to get online, express their point of view, and all this diversity is good because you get more intelligence involved, but it's also bad because you get more ignorance involved. So what do you do, Don? Well, I uh, just carry on my merry little way with whatever I'm involved in, and the rest of uh, uh, those people can do whatever it is that makes them happy. <laughs> so they can go that someplace and they can stay there or something like that. I, I discovered a long time ago that uh, with someone whose mind is made up regardless of the facts, it's just simply a waste of time to try to change their mind. So if they want to believe that uh, in 19, you know, 64, 65, 66, that the U.S. government sent about 12 unofficial astronauts to uh, the Zeta Reticuli star system, it's not hurting me. Believe it. <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much, Don Ecker, who joined Vicki Ecker and Bill and Nancy Burns for a special milestone, 20 years of UFO magazine. And everyone, we'd like to wish them another 20 years of success. Thank you very much for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you, gentlemen. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You know, David, my friend, it's very interesting that years ago, our old friend Jim Mosley came out in his magazine, which was then called Saucer News and was 
proposed or presented as a serious UFO journal before he admitted uh, he had perpetrated a few hoaxes. At that time, he took what they call the Earth theory, that all or most UFOs were really secret weapons, secret developments of our government or other governments around the planet. And people said, no, 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 Mosley, you are a fake, you're a government plant, etc., etc. <laughs> and now, in our 20th anniversary honoring of UFO magazine, and talking to William Burns, what is he talking about here? He's talking about developing all these great things in secret. I guess we might as well assume they're being tested at Area 51 or whatever, and that some of these UFOs may indeed be secret weapons of some sort. But then he raises the specter of Nikola Tesla. Why does he always get involved in this? The poor guy must be spinning in his grave at this point. Well, you had a character who defined the whole state of electricity for the 20th century and beyond. And uh, not only was this guy an important inventor, but he was a charismatic figure. And charismatic figures, they withstand the test of time for some reason. They, they resonate through the ages. What uh, Don and, and Bill brought up this notion of the particle beam weapon that Tesla supposedly developed. I mean, the thing is, Gene, if you go back and you look at the stuff that's been written about Tesla, what you find out is that he didn't really have, as far as we know, based on the stuff that I've read, he didn't really have a working particle beam weapon. He had some ideas along those lines, and he wrote a lot about it, but this was uh, something that came out towards the end of his life. In the last 20 years of Tesla's life, his actual practical productivity really went down. He, he kind of lost it. And that's well documented, which is another reason, by the way, I find a lot of the Otis T. Carr stuff real iffy. This notion that Otis T. Carr gleaned all these amazing secrets from Tesla. Well, you know, this is at the time he was supposedly hanging out with Tesla was when Tesla was really in mental decline. And I'm not trying to detract from Tesla's intelligence and his genius. The guy was brilliant. But the last 20 years of his life, he really was not productive, per se. He wasn't coming out with these amazing things. He, he worked on, on, on plans for the particle beam weapon. And he went to the American government and said, look, I'll give you this to be able to protect the country. And then it turns out what was really going on was that Tesla was really interested in peace. And he was going to more than the United States. He was going to Russia and he was going to the Europeans, telling them the same thing. So I have to wonder about, for example, the whole notion of the particle beam weapon. Was it something that Tesla actually had working? Well, from all appearances, no, it wasn't. And look, I'm more than open to discussing this with any of our listeners who have information that points to an alternate truth. Yeah, and then we start talking about UFOs and whether or not some of these things are creations of our own military. Well, I'll tell you this, Gene. The thing that my brother and I saw in Caracas in 1974, along with hundreds, if not thousands, of other people. Gene, that was definitely not human technology in its current state. It just wasn't. I've never seen something that big in the air. There's no way that that thing was created by some secret military program. And if it had been, why in God's name would it have been in Caracas in the mid-70s? It just doesn't make any sense. So it's entirely possible that some of this stuff, some of these bizarre craft like the triangular or the, um, you know, sort of the, the boomerang-shaped craft, some of those are very likely secret military technology, but disks that move the way that they've been witnessed moving, 
with these bizarre, incredible motions that would essentially rip apart any kind of technology we have. I don't know if that stuff is secret military technology, but but who really knows, right? Well, there's a logic framework here, too. If we've been testing this stuff for decades, why aren't we using it on the front lines? Why are we sticking with (laughs) old-fashioned technology? Think of how many American soldiers... Forget about the rest of the world. Forget about the arguments for and against the Iraqi war. Doesn't matter. Let's just talk about hardware. If we had this kind of hardware, why are we sending American soldiers into harm's way with inferior weaponry, with inferior aircraft? You know, whatever else you can say about our policies, that doesn't pass the test of logic. Military commanders are going to want to use the latest and greatest. There's, um, if you dig through the posts on the Paracast forums, there's um, a very odd post that someone put up there about these claimed craft and 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 bizarre airplanes that the military is supposedly testing, these things that are supposedly created with recovered alien technology. And the specs of these things are really in the realm of the unbelievable. You know, stuff that's moving like 22,000 miles an hour through the atmosphere. I I don't know, man. I I don't know if I buy some of this stuff. Look, what's become clear to me is that the amount of noise in this field is so vast. And I've really come to believe that a lot of this is about, A, real disinformation being put out there to confuse the heck out of people, which it's definitely doing. Well, it's done that to me. I mentioned the other day (laughs) that I had read several hundred pages from the AboveTopSecret.com archives on Project Serpo. That was, of course, the discussion of last week's show where we had Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, after reading that, I think I was more confused about the subject than before (laughs) I started. And I wondered if it was worth all those hours of sitting down and pouring through these message boards because it really confuses you. Now, I understand. Yeah. I understand, of course, that the possibility of this is all disinformation is very high. I understand there's a fundamental level of illogic with regard to some of the things that are happening with the Project Serpo. I mean, the things that the aliens are supposed to do, what they're supposed to know. It doesn't make a lot of sense from a logical standpoint. On the other hand, why would the government waste its time putting out all this junk? Because UFOs are already regarded by a lot of people as nonsense, even though the public appears to be willing to accept possibilities of people from other planets. So why muddy the waters when they don't need to be muddied? What's the point of all this? This is this keeps bringing us back to the point of why is this stuff all being kept secret? Why is there apparently a campaign of disinformation? We've talked on the show about the fact that about five years ago, the Air Force started releasing yet more stuff documenting or talking about what came down at Roswell. And I look at that and I think, what the heck is going on here? Why at this point in time would they do this? And Jesse Marcel Jr., when he was on our show, he said some fascinating stuff about the Air Force coming to him in recent years saying, okay, Mr. Marcel, or Dr. Marcel, we want you to now change your story yet again. What the heck is that? This is from so many years ago, yet there continues to 
to be this involvement on the part of the Air Force in spreading information about this, uh, I really start to wonder, where is the core of truth here? Like the Serpo thing. I read that and I think, you know, it's hard to imagine any motivation that would have an alien species do what they supposedly did with us. I really find it very hard to buy into the Serpo thing from that point of view alone. What would these creatures have to gain from this? Treating us as equals. Look, well, maybe not treating us as equals, but the idea that they've taken a bunch of our people to their planet for, for 10 years and left one of their own here. Uh, it's Would we do that if we went to another planet and were discovered? I, I find that very hard to believe. I really, truly do, Gene. And it's very frustrating to me that... Somewhere in here, there is a core of truth about what is really going on. The, the, the method to figuring that core out and to try to get to some real hard truth about this is it feels like it's almost an impossible task, doesn't it? You know, I get to the phrase that, what was it, Dr. McCoy used <laughs> in one of the Star Trek episodes or many, uh -oh. where's the logic in that? We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013 Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A, -A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Well, before I tell you what the logic is, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Earlier on the show, we had a foursome from UFO Magazine. 
Don and Vicki Ecker, Bill and Nancy Burns. And if you missed it, of course, you could listen to the podcast replay and all that. And now we've got a special announcement about our show. We're coming to Earth. I won't tell you what that's about until we cover this. But where's the logic in, in all this? And I don't see too much of it. Of course, I'm not supposed to understand alien logic, except my own alien logic. So maybe the aliens want to do this, you know, diplomatic exchange program or whatever the heck it is. But the other thing is... With all this information coming out there, if the government really had a secret to keep, and, well, let's talk about Colonel right. Philip Corso comes out with his book, The Day After Roswell, with Bill Burns, and we look at his credentials, and they're great. You know, it's a decorated military yeah. hero. Oh, yeah. This person worked with Senator Strom Thurmond, who was, you know, one of the military industrial complex's best supporters. He did all this, now at the twilight of his life he comes out with his book and you know first of all i wonder did he first go to his military supervisors even though he's retired go in there and say can i write this book because i would think that they would have some say over anything that you write with regard to something it's classified so right. the question is how was he allowed to get away with this of course i think bill burns told us about hiding in plain sight meaning you let the stuff get out there and maybe you let it alone. And if you draw too much attention to it, it shows you're taking it seriously. So it's just let all that stuff go out there, throw in a few crazy stories. And the question would be about, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Corso. The question would be here, was that disinformation? Let me give you another story about a connection, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, we talk about Nikola Tesla. We talk about Otis T. Carr. Remember someone else who was building an anti-gravity machine, Townsend Brown? Remember no. that name? No, no, no. Character no, named Townsend Brown. Okay, Townsend Brown, just tell you a couple of quick things. Townsend Brown in the 1950s formed a UFO organization called <laughs> NICAP. He was the founder of NICAP. Now, it didn't do very well, and that's when Major Kehoe took over the organization, took over the organization. So we have Townsend Brown, one of the early anti-gravity device inventors, in quotes, forming NICAP. And then we have somebody who worked for the military, Major Donald Kehoe, even though he was retired, taking over that organization, and then a former head of the CIA joining their board, mm -hmm. member also of, allegedly, of MJ-12. What is going on oh, here? Isn't this oh, crazy, boy. folks, that all this stuff converging, the secret weapons, the secret developments, anti-gravity, NICAP, military-industrial complex, and you wonder why people can't figure out what the UFO mystery is all about. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? I can't figure it out either. This is getting crazier and crazier every minute. And it shows no signs of letting up. Not at all. It, it, this is, I've really come to the conclusion, Gene, that the nature of this topic is just so odd. This is just such a deeply strange thing that it's, it's probably fair to say that the truth is far odder than anything we can imagine. And that ultimately, if we did discover what's really going on, we wouldn't be too thrilled about it. I think that's why there's all this craziness going on around this. I think that when you come right down to it, uh, we're not as advanced as we'd like to think we are. We're not as capable as we'd like to believe we are. Humans have this terrible issue with vanity and ego. It, it really defines all of our behavior in every way. If we came to understand what is 
very likely the truth, Gene. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in these circles for many years about the idea of, crazy idea, of humans being a genetic experiment. I have to tell you, the more I consider it, the more I look at the way our world works, and I look at how incredibly violent a species we are, it sort of makes sense, Gene. It makes sense that this is an engineered reality we live in. It, it really feels that way a lot of the time to me. And this is going to sound nutty to people. I it's know going to sound like but, Matrix. Well, I don't know that we're like human batteries or anything, but I think it's it's fair to suspect that we're an experiment gone wrong. And, <laughs> yes. I mean... Well, I'd like to see somebody prove to me otherwise. You look at how human beings behave, Gene. You look at how we respond to situations. Even the incredible amount of confusion around this topic, and it always comes back to us wanting to believe that somehow we're just so special that, you know, there are these many different species visiting the Earth to find out about those wacky humans. Boy, those humans, they're really great. They're God's own children. Let's figure out what's going on with them. Let's try to get in on this game. I mean, look at the size of this universe. My God, you're going to tell me that we're the most important thing in this whole huge expanse? This, this I, I can't believe there's something in me that says that our vanity will be our undoing. And Every day that I see what's going on in the world, Gene, it, that notion is confirmed. As you say, an experiment gone wrong or just an experiment, and that would cause a specific or a number of alien species to come here to see what's going on. Maybe this space federation consisting of 10 or 20 different worlds, civilizations, whatever. They got together in a seated Earth back in the days of the ancient astronauts, okay? And now they're, before then, before then, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they sure. come here and they see what we're doing. And either they're shocked beyond belief, laughing up their sleeves or whatever that passes for clothing on their worlds. Or, you know, who knows? Or maybe they're just looking at us with bemusement about how stupid we are and when we're going to destroy ourselves so they could seed another civilization. Or maybe they're moving things in certain directions, and that goes back to the UFO field. All these red herrings we read about. And I think Project Serpo is a red herring. Maybe Philip Corso, what he said was a bit of a red herring. A lot of these stories are red herrings, and they're designed to cover up some core truth. But how do you find the truth? Heck, you can't find the truth or anything logical about Project Serpo after reading the first 10,000 pages. How are you going to find out if there's a core truth about the UFO phenomenon? Because there's so much garbage out there. And right. part of it is just the nature of the Internet, that the free exchange of information makes it easy for everybody to put up their stuff and express their point of view, which is wonderful. But it can also confuse the hell out of you. And that's what's and happening here. Yeah. I know. This yeah. show has been on a little over six months, and we have seen so many disparate stories. And you can't say they're all false. Some appear to have at least a kernel of truth. But what do you do? What do you do? It's really hard to come to a conclusion about that. I'm not sure, Gene. At the same time, the realm of experiences that I have personally undergone tells me that the universe is a far stranger place than we can currently imagine. And this brings me back to the notion of human vanity, Gene. This idea that science somehow can explain everything in its current state. It's nonsense. Our science is still so constrained. 
Look at the nature of our society in terms of how it uses energy. My God, Gene, we are burning up melted dinosaurs and melted plant material from millions of years ago. This is our primary energy source at this point. We're melting dinosaur goo. You're going to tell me that's the, 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 the trademark of an advanced civilization? There's no way. We're, we're having wars over the concept of whose God is more powerful? Man, if you step back from this and you look at this from a completely objective point of view, human beings are nothing but blown-out children. We're just a bunch of kids protecting our little bunch of toys, hitting each other, saying, Mommy, I want more. I want that. Give me that. My daddy's stronger than your daddy. My God's stronger than your God. My God's the true God. I mean, this is the discourse on the planet at this point. Where's the comet? Where's the asteroid? Hit us already. Let's restart this nightmare. Because if we continue along the route we're going now, Gene, your son, my girlfriend's kids, what kind of world are they going to have? where water is more valuable than oil, where clean air is going to be this incredible thing that people are going to dream about, where genetic diversity is, how many more species are we losing every year? Now, granted, 99% of all the species of creatures that have lived on this planet are now extinct. This is true. But if we look at everything as a trend, if we look, if we plot what's happening on the planet, it's pretty clear to me, Gene, that human beings are trying to find out just how fast they can destroy themselves and how efficiently they can do it. This is the great result of the human experiment. I really want to believe that's not true, Gene. I want to believe that there is a higher good that we are capable of. But you look at the way people behave every day, and not just on, a, on an international scale. Look at, I mean, I live in New York, man. I look at the way people drive every day, and I think everybody's got a death wish. <laughs> Wait till you see Boston. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Earlier on the show, we talked about the 20th anniversary of UFO Magazine, and we were speaking to Nancy and Bill Burns and Vicky and Don Ecker. When it got to the end of the show, it really spearheaded our discussion right now, which is what's really going on in the UFO field? Were there secret developments in aviation, weaponry, whatever? that are reflected in some of these UFO sightings, maybe around government installations such as Area 51. And by the way, 
Our show is now going to be heard near Area 51. Uh-oh. Should we mention this? Let's mention this before we pre- uh, proceed. Okay, huh? sure. Yeah, let's go. Right now, I know I do this reluctantly. I don't like to plug ourselves here because it looks like we're hawking for listeners, and we are, but I don't want it to be so obvious. <laughs> There's a radio station called KLAV in Las Vegas, and those of you who are in Las Vegas are aware of the station, I'm sure. It's a talk station, and starting September 10th at 11 p.m., you will hear the Paracast on KLAV in Las Vegas. That's not going to change our Internet structure, by the way, except for one thing, and that is instead of having the live Internet stream on Tuesday evenings, it'll be on Sunday evenings. Okay. What are we up against? Are we up against like some important TV show on that, Sunday evening? Probably Desperate Housewives. <laughs> we're cooked, man. If we're up against Desperate Housewives, it's all over. Well, I look at it this way. What are we going to do? We're just going to have to go for it. People, I think people right now are getting tired of Desperate Housewives. The show is getting repetitious. Its ratings are down somewhat. They need an alternative. They need. Then we are that alternative. That's right. <laughs> we need cute women on the show. Okay. It's a good thing they can't see us, Gene, because if they could see us, it would all be over. Well, they could see us on the website, and they still listen to us, so they have forgiven us for that. Oh, okay. All right. So, But, yes, we can have some cute ladies. We'll put on my wife and your girlfriend for eye well, candy. Well, maybe we need some we need some cute alien women. That's true. They used to work on the Dean Martin show, I think. Oh, God, don't do it. I knew you were going to do that. No, stop. They're probably retired now. But maybe they haven't hit the wall yet. Maybe they still look nice. So the format of the show is not really going to change at all. We're just going to be able to be heard on terrestrial radio in the in the Vegas area. That's right. Well, there'll be one change, which is because we have to allow for them to have local announcements and station breaks. The show, instead of being two hours, will be 114 minutes in length. Oh, my God. Six minutes lost. That's right. What shall we ever do? Nothing. <laughs> okay. We're going to do it, you know. And by the way, this is only the beginning. We're hopeful that within... A short period of time will announce other terrestrial and maybe extraterrestrial outlets. Maybe the space people or the ultra-dimensional people are listening to us. You know who I'd like to have on the show, and we're going to go after him. We're going to go after this man, John A. Keel. So I called that number. I'm going to tell you this right on the air. I called that number that we found, and it wasn't John A. It wasn't the John A. Keel. It was another John A. Keel who said, you know, I get about 100 calls a year looking for that guy. I'm not him. Now, that might have been him, but I don't think it was, Gene. He's a very nice man, by the way. Right. Well, John Keel's a nice man, too, but he he's a bit of a curmudgeon in his golden years, okay? He's at that well, magic age of, what, about 75? There's something about 75 years old, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it, something about being 75 years old that seems to bring out different aspects of people. Jim Mosley is 75 years old, for example, and he's doing pretty well. Stanton Friedman is around that age, right? He can't be 75 years old. Stanton Friedman? Oh, no, sure. Be, maybe, really, I thought he was like in his 60s. Oh, no, he's in his 70s now, definitely. Really? Yes. Oh. So It's going pretty strong then. Well, you know, Say. that's also that's interesting here, that people are hanging on until their twilight years. What is the name of that actress, Betty White, who's, what, 85? Five years old. I just saw the roast thing she did uh, at she the Bill Shatner is, roast. She killed. She she's she fabulous. This woman is a comedy genius. And you're talking <laughs> about this woman. First of all, she's done serious stuff, comedies, and her timing is impeccable. Her timing is impeccable. If you ever see her, and she plays a small role on the TV series Boston Legal. 
with Shatner and James Spader, she gets on the stage and she steals it. She just takes over that camera. And you look at this little old lady who is just right there. She's smart as a whip. And she's going to be going, I hope, to 120. I mean, it's just great that people Amen. are living Amen. longer and longer with productive lives. But that magic age of 75, I don't know. Hmm. Well, you know, it's funny when you said Betty White, I thought about that uh, movie, The Aristocrats, and Phyllis Diller. I mean, how old is Phyllis Diller? She still completely kills. She's hysterical. She's got to be in her 80s. Right. And she rules. Yeah, no, she's really funny. We should get Phyllis Diller on the show she, to talk about the uh, the UFOs she saw with uh, Milton Berle. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? While they were hanging out at Jackie Gleason's house in Inverary in Florida. We should get her on. Well, of course, we've heard the story about Jackie Gleason that, what was it now? He went with Richard Nixon to see the aliens or something like that? Uh, you know... There's another case where if Gleason had actually seen this stuff, he would have gone public with it. I really believe that. I'm a huge Jackie Gleason fan. I've read the two major biographies on him that are fascinating reads. And he was completely fascinated by all aspects of the paranormal. He would have been a great guest on the show. But if Gleason had really seen anything, Gene, he would have gone public with it. I'm sure of that. So this whole story that Nixon took him to go see alien bodies... I don't buy it. You know, in those years, the golden years of paranormal radio, the years of Long John Neville, he was on Long John Neville several times, and you Gleason? didn't... Yeah. Oh, yes, and you couldn't pull the wool over this guy's eyes. He was a smart, savvy, show business veteran who'd been through everything and had done a lot of things, and if you said something that he felt wasn't true, and he had a great mm -hmm. native curiosity and knowledge, he would jump on you for it. And I bet. Absolutely. He wouldn't put up with this. And I think he's probably rolling in his grave over these rumors. You can say all these things about somebody who isn't there to defend themselves. You know, like you, yeah. there's a story, for example, in the Project Serpo issues regarding Carl Sagan. Now, Carl Sagan's not around to say anything. So, of course, he can't dispute the claims. But if you talk about somebody who isn't here, you know, like Nikola Tesla. I mean, how do you know he wasn't out there in the 1920s feeding the pigeons and Otis T. Carr, who then would have been in his early 20s, came along and helped him out and became a friend and became his protege? How do you know, except there's no documentation? Right. There's no way to know, ultimately. We're going on hearsay. I mean, that's the part of the problem, of course, of this whole field, is that to a large extent, we, we don't have good, hard, solid evidence. A, a case that fascinates me, Gene, and we're going to have to figure out who to get on the show to talk about this, is the incredible story of Arigo, the bloodless surgeon in Brazil, who for 20, 30 years, this guy, look, he's probably one of the best documented paranormal cases in all of history. There's a fascinating book about him called Arigo, the Surgeon of the Rusty Knife. To read that book, it is very clear to me, Gene, that Arigo was the real thing. Yet, how do you really, at this point in time, discuss Arigo when so many of the people who were present to witness what he did are now gone? Now, I'm sure if we went to Brazil and we did a search for people who were cured by Arigo, I mean, he, he operated on thousands and thousands of people over again. It was like a 20 or 30 year period. He did this stuff. And it's a long, involved story we're going to have to talk about in some future episode of the Paracast. But so much of what existed around that story has essentially vanished. How do you go back and, and talk about it? And that's why I was so glad when we had Dr. Marcel on the show. How do you talk about the Roswell episode when so many of the people who were there are gone? But Jesse Marcel was there. Jesse Marcel, I believe, handled 
material from an alien craft. And the fact that he is still coherent and still able to get on a radio show like ours and talk about it, that is, it's a very hard thing to do in this in this field, Gene. And, um, you know, this is where I get frustrated because so much of the truth gets buried under time and under human noise that I, I get frustrated by the state of this field and the fact that, like we both know, there are so many people involved with this who are just out to make a buck, like some of the people we've had on the show who are just full of crap. It's so frustrating because what they do is they take away time, they take away credibility from legitimate discussion and legitimate research, and that pisses me off. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 